This is episode 163 with sports psych PhD, certified running and strength coach, and mental performance consultant, Professor Brian Zuliger. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm Jason Fitzgerald, your host today and the coach and author behind Strength Running. Running has been a major part of my life for more than 22 plus years, and my goal with Strength Running is to help you avoid the mistakes that I made in my own career and give you the tools, strategies, and resources to accomplish all of your big goals, whether that's running your first race ever to building mental toughness, preventing your next injury, or becoming a stronger, more athletic runner. I bring you the thought leaders in the running industry, the pro coaches, performance experts, elite runners, sports psychologists, physical therapists, and strength coaches who can give you new insights into how to train so you can keep improving. I want you to better understand running, to view knowledge as a competitive advantage, and to always have the tools to take your running to the next level. Because the more you understand the sport, the better decisions you'll make about your training. Don't miss our other 162 episodes of the podcast, our video channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning, or where it all began, strengthrunning.com, where you can find all of our training programs that help you prevent injuries, run faster, develop mental skills, or become a stronger, more powerful athlete. And a big thanks to our sponsor for this episode, the Run Smarter Podcast with host Brody Sharp. I was actually a guest on this podcast back in June and was just so impressed by the host's questions, dedication to science and accuracy, so I was excited to partner with him on this sponsorship. The Run Smarter podcast helps you manage your injuries with a goal to bring clarity and control back to the injured runner. Find the Run Smarter podcast with Brody Sharp, subscribe, and run healthier. Let's move on to our guest today, Mr. Brian Zuliger. He's a professor of sports psychology in the kinesiology department at Adams State University, right here in Denver, Colorado. He's also a certified mental performance consultant, a running coach, and a strength coach, as well as an American College of Sports Medicine certified exercise physiologist. Brian has formal training in so many fascinating areas, and you'll hear that in our discussion, which focuses on the unique psychology of college runners and how you can learn from them. We're going to talk more about what his day-to-day looks like when he works with college runners, the skills that they work on, as well as the advantages and disadvantages of your psychology as a young adult. There's a lot to learn in this episode, and I'm excited to bring you a polymath in the performance space. If you want to get the most out of your brain, build mental toughness, confidence, reduce anxiety, and think more productively about your training— I think you're going to find a lot of useful wisdom in this episode. And if you'd like to go deeper on sports psych principles and how they apply to runners, go to strengthrunning.com slash brain to learn more. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Professor Brian Zuliger. Brian, I actually want to start by talking about you being a nationally competitive three-event water skier when you were in college, which is something that I didn't even know existed. So let's start there. How did this come about? Yeah, so that actually is running related in a a weird way. Um, So I originally, well, first off, I grew up in Wisconsin and uh, most people don't think of water skiing in Wisconsin because they think of cold in Wisconsin. 
Um, but in the summertime, it's it's hot and humid and there's lakes all over the place. And um, so water sport recreation, whether you're just jumping in the lake to cool off or doing something with boats or whatever and stuff like that is is very common and popular. So I grew up around that in the summertime and just learned to do it when I was little. Um, it was just what my brothers did and what my family did kind of thing. We had a little summer um, home kind of thing um, on a lake in northern Wisconsin that we would go up to on the weekends and stuff. And so that was just kind of what we did. And I was very recreational, so to speak. We just did it. You know, there was no like, I didn't know it was a sport, but so to speak, in a competition sense or anything like that. And um, fast forward to undergrad, I um, got recruited to walk on to the team at the University of Wisconsin and went to school there and, and pursued that. And long story short, that didn't end up working out in the case of me continuing to run. Um, and in that process, uh, that was where I, I became a, a manager with the team, actually, because I was interested in wanting to get into coaching and, and teaching and stuff. I knew at that age, you know, thinking like high school coach and teacher kind of thing. And, um, and then I was talking with a kid in class who was telling me that there was a water ski team, like a club sport team on campus. And so I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I've done this sport my whole life. I just didn't know you could compete in it or anything like that, or actually like, you know, formally train, you know, I just thought you just kind of went hung onto the rope behind the boat and skied kind of thing. And so, uh, that led to, you know, going and going to practices, learning how the sport works and stuff. And so it's three, the, the context that we competed in was three event skiing, just slalom trick and jump. And the, the slalom competition is there's six buoys on a course. The boat drives down the middle kind of thing. And um, you have to go around the buoys. And then as it progresses, the, the rope gets shorter um, after you reach the max boat speed for your category or whatever. And it basically ends with the winner is whoever goes around the most buoys at the shortest line length kind of thing. Um, and, and so it ends in failure, which is an interesting sport when you think about sports psychology kind of thing. Every person, even the winner, fails in the end, so to speak. Um, so that's the psalm. And that's probably easiest just to Google and, and look up what that is. Um, and then trick skiing is just this little um, short ski that has no fins on it or anything. It's flat. So it's really slippery and kind of hard to be on and and you can do spins and flips and tricks and stuff like that and those are judged and scored um and so if you execute the trick each trick is worth a predetermined number of points and then the person with the most points um wins that and then the last one is jump which is for distance and similar to um you know long distance snow ski jumping in the in the olympics you know where they're they're flying out over these really big skis with uh um, kind of that flying V kind of position with their head out in between the tips of the skis kind of thing. So same concept there going for distance um, and you're just cutting at a, a ramp um, and flying through the air. And that one's definitely got a lot of sports psychology and hope. <laughs> yeah. These sound really intense. Yeah. And then that led to taking a summer job as a, a water ski instructor at a summer camp. And then that led to the following summer doing a, working at a water ski school and yeah, I kind of continued to do that through graduate school. 
until I started my PhD is when I stopped competing because then it just, I didn't have the the facilities and access to it. It's, it's a sport that you have to, it's not something you can just go out and do because uh, you got to have a boat, you got to have a lake, you got to have a lot of things involved to, to make it happen. So, Unlike running, which I love because of its simplicity and the fact that you can kind of bring it with you wherever and do it anywhere. It's about the exact opposite of running. Our <laughs> <laughs> yeah. ease of access and ability to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because it's, you know, kind of this offbeat sport, but it, it, in an indirect way, brought you to running. It got you involved in, you know, sports and coaching. And, you know, at that point in your life, I think it was a nice uh, way for you just to get more involved. And, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so interested in talking with you is because, you know, while I've talked with quite a few sports psychologists over the years through the podcast and other projects, you really stand apart because you have worked directly with runners here at Adams State University in Colorado as their mental strength coach. So I'm looking forward to talking more about your work and more specifically what you've learned over the years about endurance runners. So, you know, maybe we can stop and talk about, uh, you know, did you always want to work with young adults in a college setting? Because, you know, this is a very, I think, specific age range. And with you saying, you know, I was always interested in teaching and coaching, you know, what is it about this age range that's appealing to you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And um, I haven't necessarily thought about it a lot. I think it's one of those things where sometimes you get on a path and you start to develop, uh, and this happens for a lot of people, it, it just kind of evolves. I mean, when I when I started kind of on this path, I, I wanted to be a college track and field coach. And I don't know if I necessarily knew exactly why. Actually, I should say, I do know why I like college. Um, the answer relates back to that summer as a water ski instructor at the summer camp. So it was uh, like a sleepaway kind of summer camp set up in upstate New York. And the kids were anywhere from 6 to 15 years old. Um, and, you know, so your camp counselor, bunk counselor kind of thing, you know, when you're not out on the lake teaching them water skiing kind of thing. And that was an awesome experience. But it also made me realize, I don't know if I like, yes, I can work with six to 15 year olds and I'm good at it. But I don't know if I want to do that day in, day out, you know, every day of the year. Um, and quite frankly, to be honest, a lot of that was driven because of of parents and even though the parents aren't at camp because they're there you know for you know six weeks or whatever that they're at camp um it just uh changed my perspective on that age and having to deal with parents and you know quite frankly it's a lot of the stuff that you know where i teach and help other people with who are coaches and teachers and work with those age range um but i personally found more um I don't know, more connection, more like interest in the, you know, that college age range where they're young adults and, you know, they're really trying to figure life out, so to speak, kind of thing. Um, and so I think that kind of, I remember specifically, it's been so long now that I forget, but that's kind of what shifted me wanting to go away from sort of being that high school teacher coach kind of thing um, to looking at more like college age. Yeah, it is an interesting age from my perspective. It's like you're you're this hybrid person between an adult and a child. 
but it's also, I think, rewarding probably from a professional perspective because, you know, as college athletes, you know, they're in the habit of learning. You know, they're going to classes all day and then they come to practice. And so I'm sure that they're quite receptive to, you know, any kind of lessons or ways of thinking about running and training and the way that the brain interfaces with all that training. Because I'm sure, you know, with adults, there's a little bit more pushback. We, you know, it gets harder to learn new things the older that we get. And I think a lot of adult runners uh, have a little bit of trouble getting into this whole world of sports psychology because, you know, it's almost like practicing our, you know, it's training for the brain and we don't necessarily want to do that. We want to go out there and run. We want to train the body because that's the sport and that's what we like to do. Yeah. And, and a lot of that is like some historical context too, in the sense that we didn't talk about that stuff. So the, you know, even, even for me, so any, you know, I'm turning 36 here at the end of the month. Like, you know, I didn't grow up learning about sports psychology. I didn't learn about sports psychology until my first um, sports psychology class when, you know, I was studying in college kind of thing and, and as an undergrad and I was doing exercise sports science and I, I had to take that as one of the classes. Up to that point, I had never really heard of it, you know, and so that's different. And now the kids that I'm working with and that we're seeing now when they're coming in at 18 years old and, and 22 years old, it's, you know, they've maybe heard of it or, you know, they've seen it, it's been in the media or they've seen some pro athlete talk about it or something like that. That just wasn't really a thing, you know, for me. And so anybody older than me um, is, is in the same boat kind of thing that they likely have had little to no exposure to it. And in particular, whether it's mental health or just the brain in general, those things were traditionally seen as sort of weaknesses and you don't talk about that. And um, it's not something you can train It's sort of either you have it or you don't. And those kind of things that all those myths that quite frankly, as a field, we're still working to overcome. Right. And I think we're, we're very similar ages. I'm going to be 37 soon. And I, I had a very similar experience with sports psychology in that I virtually didn't think about it at all until a little bit during college, but a lot more post-collegiately. And now I feel like the sport of endurance running is having this great moment where a lot of runners are finally realizing that sports psychology has a lot to offer. It's sort of like how 10 years ago, runners started to understand, hey, strength training is not something that is for other athletes. It's for us too. And we can experience a lot of progress and a lot of benefits if we strength train the right way. And now we're starting to move into this area where I think we're starting to think the same things about sports psychology, that a little bit of upfront work, a little bit of more mindful thinking about how we think about running can actually pay dividends down the line. And, you know, I'd love to hear more about what your work with the cross country and track teams actually looks like. How do you interface with the team? What do you focus on? Yeah, I'll answer it one second, but just to, to piggyback off what you said, it's an important piece that I think the shift in that we're seeing with the endurance athletes, and I think some of that is that they, um, historically, it was just kind of like, everybody was like, you just run more, you just run more miles, so to speak, like you just got to be fitter, you know, that's how you like get better. And there's a lot of truth to that. But what is really cool now is we have research 
that is starting to get out there a little bit more that shows that the brain is actually the, the main limiting factor in endurance performance. And yes, you have to be physically fit, but with that fitness, your ability to tap into that fitness is driven by your brain. And we've got good research that supports that now to show that if you intentionally train your self-talk um, while running, ideally is how I prefer to teach people to do it. Not, I mean, you can sit and do it, you know, on your own, you know, kind of thing outside of physically running, but combining the two together is, is best. And then I think that's a key thing. Like you said, like it's shifted people's focus as people start to realize that or learn that, like, you know, you can only run so many miles. And at what point do you find ways to sort of continue to improve and get better? And it's sort of like, how can we get more out of what we have? And that's where that mental training comes into play. And I think historically an endurance competition is traditional sports psychology, like where it kind of most popular originally was golf and still probably is to this day. Some major league baseball has really picked up on it as well, but it's like, okay, I get that a, a golfer can have like a focus routine or something like that. Cause they take, you know, multiple shots. They've got time to think about it, but I'm running a 10 K where's my time out. Where's my half time? Where, you know, how am I like focusing and refocusing? It's like, it's a continuous thing that just starts and finishes. There's no chance to like gather your thoughts, so to speak. And so I think that's also why historically endurance athletes haven't thought of mental training because it's like, well, how do I do that? They don't even know how to do it for their sport because it's so different, you know, than, than a lot of the sort of traditional ball and stick sports, so to speak. So that's just a, I could talk about that a lot, but that's just sort of a, to piggyback off of that. To answer your question about like, what is, what does it sort of look like? How do I interact with the athletes? Um, it's, I, I, I was taught and, and I operate on this idea of an integrated approach. And so a uh, mental strength coach, as I call myself, or a sports psychology professional, um, certified mental performance consultant, whatever you, you, you classify it as, is a support staff role, just like a strength and conditioning coach or an athletic trainer or, or somebody like that. And so we're support staff to the coaches and to the athletes. And we need to be integrated in that system. And historically, it was kind of seen as more the sports psychologist role, like coming from this counseling psychologist type kind of, you know, mindset of like, you know, you go to your office and you sit in the office and you tell them about your problems kind of thing. Um, and I take a much more proactive, like I look at it as a build it philosophy instead of a fix it philosophy. So it's integrated. So I'm part of the, the team, so to speak, as is in the sense of like, you know, working with the athletes and coaches on a regular basis. It's a proactive approach. And so while I might meet with somebody individually and talk about what, you know, their specific needs are, um, it's also just teaching in general to all the athletes and coaches um, basic co core concepts about mental strength training that can help them improve. and. You know, so it's um, going to practice is uh, being at practice and observing and just being in the environment, um, spending a lot of time in the environment, watching them train. And in particular with something like, you know, endurance athletes, like that's when they're that's when they're doing their sport. It's not like you have like you go in and you're doing these drills and there's all these breaks and stuff like that. If you're at like a football practice or something like that. 
that takes like, you know, maybe three to four hours typically, you know, there, you know, two hours is a longer practice, you know, and, and usually the bulk of the practice is spent just running, so to speak. And so if you don't go out with them on the runs, which at Adam State, that's something we do because of just the nature of it and just to be out there to kind of help coach them and watch them run is we would drive around in vans and, you know, watch them through the workout, coach them through the workouts, whether it was a tempo or a long run or just even easy runs. And a lot of that time you're just kind of chatting with them or just kind of watching them. But it's being in that environment in the mental strength coach role is really important because that helps you when you have that little brief interaction with the athlete and passing, whether it's before practice, after practice, or, or during, you know, you've got some information to go off of when they're saying, Hey, this is what I'm experiencing, or this is what I'm, you know, trying to work on. You're not just, it's not like they just walked in your office and you don't have any context to what they're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. It seems like you, you actually want to get to know the athletes, understand what yeah. their training is like, what they're going through, you know, on a, uh, you know, outside of practice too. Cause you know, the, co- the whole college environment is, is, can be stressful and challenging and fun and it's just an overload of all kinds of dis- different emotions all at once because you're, you're studying and you're experiencing new social situations and you're uh, training with a college team for the first time maybe. And so, yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah, definitely. And that's where that holistic approach comes into play and and looking at them as a person first, you know, so we start with that, you know, that they're a person and then athlete is part of that makeup of that identity. It might be a really big part of it. In some cases, it's probably too big of a part of it. And that's one of the things we work on, but you know, it's, it's seeing them as a person first and taking that holistic approach into like, there's, like you said, a lot of factors at play um, in that college environment that can impact, you know, their mindset. I would love to talk more about the specific psychology of the young adult, you know, the 18 to 22 year old, the kind of athlete that you're interfacing with most often, you know, are are there, uh, certain either mental drawbacks or advantages of being this age and being, uh, competing at the collegiate level? And, I'm asking this question because I'm just curious, you know, because, you know, at 20 years old or so, your brain is not yet finished developing. You know, this is still a very fascinating time. And I'm just curious if runners at this age are maybe more susceptible to certain psychological hurdles, or maybe they have certain mental skills that, you know, perhaps get eroded or atrophy over time. Yeah, I would say one thing that classifies this age group in general regardless of athlete or non-athlete is the risk takers. And, and what I mean by that is like, they're, they're testing things out. They're trying things out. Most of their life, they've probably been told what they can and can't do to some extent. And this is that time period where they can start to make more choices on their own. And so that's good and bad. Um, it's good in that they need to learn how to do this to be successful in life. It's bad if they've had very little autonomy in their life, um, which is unfortunately the case sometimes. Um, they're not good at making decisions. And so they, they make bad ones. And you know that's where we've got to try to help them and coach them up and help them navigate those kind of things. But I would say that that's a, a thing that I see. And, and so how does that 
parlay into, you know, the, the mindset of competition and training is that they have a tendency to not be good at listening to their body. It's really important for an endurance athlete to be able to listen to their body and communicate to their coach what they're feeling. Because at the end of the day, the coach is making some guesses based off of prior knowledge, based off of some physiological data, some times on, you know, tests and things like that. But at the end of the day, coaching is 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 a best guess game. And, and the best coaches are making really educated guesses, so to speak, because they've got lots of data and they're relying on research and all these different factors. But ultimately, the athlete has to to learn that and internalize that to some degree if they're going to be successful. And so a lot of that is helping, trying to help them do that. Um, and a lot of times they, they struggle with that. And so a lot of my work sometimes is helping them learn how to verbalize that and communicate to their coaches um, what's going on so that their coach can better coach them essentially and helping them get better at communicating with their coaches because the the coach athlete relationship is an interesting one it's one that historically is has a lot of power dynamics at play and, and athletes sometimes are depending on their previous experiences not feel like they can communicate to their coach or not good at doing that. And so I think that's a key aspect of this age group is helping them be able to kind of advocate for themselves and also like understand what's, what they're, what they're, what's going on and how to communicate that and then how to self-regulate that ultimately to know that, okay, like today's an easy day and I need to maybe go really easy because I went really hard in the workout yesterday. But in particular, at a place like Adam State, where it's very competitive and got some of the best runners around, um, somebody's always feeling good someday, you know, and <laughs> feel easy to go chase that person. And you might that might not be what's best for you. And you can sit there as a coach and say, oh, you shouldn't go chase that person. You need to slow down. But you know, they're eighteen to twenty-two years old. They they sometimes got to figure that out on their own and figure that out the hard way sometimes to some degree and you know that's part of that decision making process and helping them realize hey like i went really hard yesterday i need to go easier today or whatever it is or vice versa kind of thing and so um yeah that would be one there's a couple of things that i see pretty common and in particular in endurance athletes at this age yeah, you're giving me flashbacks to my college cross-country days where you're absolutely right. Someone's always feeling good. Someone always wants to be the hero, and it's rarely you. And it's a very, uh, <laughs> it can be a very humbling experience to you just be surrounded by very talented athletes. And when someone's feeling good and, and they're having a good day and you're not, it's just very apparent. So I, I kind of, I, I like the uh, humility that that experience really demands. Yeah, yeah, humility, mental maturity, um, vulnerability to say, hey, I'm 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 tired today, like, and that's okay, like, you know, and um because there's this idea that well if I say I'm tired, then it looks like I'm weak or I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do, and maybe they didn't recover properly, which is a very common issue at this age as well. They don't they just think the workout is what matters, and then they don't eat right and sleep right and do all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and so they're trying to train like an elite athlete, but they're not recovering like an elite athlete. They're not fueling like an elite athlete doing all that kind of stuff. And when they put all that stuff together and they get the mindset and mental maturity with it, that's when we really see them flourish and take off. Do you think it's common for younger runners to only think that the value of their training happens during the training and then they don't think about all the other little things, the sleep, the nutrition, uh, all the other aspects of recovery, the strength training? Do they overly focus on, you know, the races, the workouts, the long runs? Absolutely. And a lot of that is because coaches historically do that. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's a, it's a twofold thing. You know, the athletes learn this at young ages, so to speak, maybe in high school or whatever it is. And even good coaches will say, Hey, you know, you need to recover and stuff like that. But we sometimes, um, and, and I was the same way. I'm not saying I'm, I, I've learned these things and, and I've learned this from coaches that are, that have learned it and figured it out and passed it along kind of thing. But it's basic physiology really at the end of the day is that the workout itself actually technically makes you worse. Like it breaks your body down and it's only when you recover that you actually get the benefits of said workout. And I don't think we do a good job of educating the athletes on that. So that's one of the things I talk with them a lot about because and you're thinking, well, that's physiology. That's not mental training. Well, it is mental training because the two are interrelated. They're coming in going, oh, I'm kind of tired. You know, I didn't hit the times from yesterday's workout or whatever it is. And that's impacting their mindset. But what really it is, is a byproduct of they didn't recover properly. They did, maybe didn't get enough sleep or, you know, they, you know, they're eating the crappy food in the dining hall or something like that. Or they went to Taco Bell with their roommate, you know, at 11 o'clock at night. And it's like, well, yeah, you're probably going to not feel as great the next day and not run as well. And then they get in their head thinking, it's it's mental, so to speak, and it's both at the same time, but they're interrelated, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you mentioning late night fast food runs uh, is also giving me flashbacks to college cross country <laughs> and track. I'm feeling personally attacked, Brian. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not the only one, so. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting hearing about you know some of the the challenges or drawbacks with the psychology of a young adult, but. You know, I, I'm also thinking that some of these can be flipped and turned into strengths, you know, like it, going too hard, not understanding when you have to tone it down and slow down a little bit. That can also be a strength, can it? Yeah. And, and that's the way we like to approach it. Similar to what I was saying earlier with the sort of build it model is, is the strengths focused model is like, you know, it, traditionally, historically, the way people think of sports psychology is, oh, this person's a head case, like you got to go talk to the sports site. You know, or oh, this person's struggling. You got to go talk to the sports psych, and and we often it's based on identifying weaknesses and trying to get those back to a normal baseline. And that's sort of the old mental health model. Like, let's just you're got these deficiencies. Let's get you back to normal. I, I'm not looking at that. I want to take you from wherever you are, and I want to try to help you go beyond normal to excellence. You know, and so. When we, we look at that, we, we say, okay, what are your strengths? What are the things you do well? And if you're very driven or push, you know, and, and highly motivated and want to go out and go hard every day, well, that's a good thing if we harness that correctly. Um, and so it, it's how do you kind of shape that, you know? And I think that's where the psychology comes into play as a coach or in working with 
coaches and athletes from a mental strength coach role is how do we shape it without like the old school way was to break them down and build them back up. Um, and I don't, we know that that doesn't work now. We've got lots of research that supports that. And so what we need to do is take them from where they are and build from there. And that's a key piece in, in doing that. And so taking that athlete who, who has some of those tendencies and saying like, okay, let's not like try to squash those out of that person. Let's take those and just kind of sort of redirect them in a, in a more positive way, so to speak. And, and in a way that, um, allows them to, to be the best they can be kind of thing. I'd love to spend some time talking a little bit about that redirecting process. You know, I think, uh, you know, us adult runners, we have some good habits, we have some bad habits. What, what are some common practical ways of taking, you know, maybe a, a psychological uh, barrier or uh, an inefficient way of thinking about training or, or some, some sort of psychological uh, hurdle that is preventing us from achieving our potential? How can we practically redirect ourselves to be more productive, to think more productively, and to channel, you know, whatever energy or uh, thinking that we have about running into, you know, just a more efficient, productive way so that we can get more out of the sport? Yeah, um, I would say in general, it's it's a shift from an outcome-driven mindset to a more process-oriented mindset or, you know, in the psychology literature, like task or mastery orientation versus ego orientation and so like when people talk about these things a lot but there's a difference between saying oh you need to focus on the process and actually being able to like articulate that and teach that to somebody and having somebody actually do that is the is where the challenge comes into play and so how do you do that on a day in day out basis is where that comes down to kind of thing and i think for a lot of people, especially in a sport like running, it's so numbers driven, you know, whether you're thinking about volume and intensity and times and PRs and all that kind of stuff that it, it makes it a very outcome oriented sport. And, you know, one of the things I always talk about is like, you know, I, I pose the question, if you could run a four minute mile, you know, you're a college male and you could run a four minute mile. You ran four flat point zero zero versus if you ran three fifty nine point nine nine or whatever, you know, like with one, you're happy. And with one, you're sad. Like, you know, like if you really break it down, like, cause the idea is to break the four minute mile barrier kind of thing. And so if we think of that as like sort of a psychological barrier, it's like, well, one hundredth of a second is going to determine your happiness. You know, and so I think that's what happens a lot with runners. It's like we go out and it's like, oh, my legs felt good today or I felt good today. I ran a certain pace today and now, you know, I go out today and I'm not able to run that pace or I don't feel as good. And we measure things in really short time periods. Like I'm doing good or bad based on how I feel or what the watch says, like currently. And what we want to shift away from is that outcome in the moment driving how we feel and how we think. Because that changes our thought processes a lot of times from being effective thoughts to being more ineffective. And how we do that is we got to look at it in a bigger picture. Like endurance running is much more endurance in any sport is about consistency. It's not any one workout that makes or breaks you. It's consistency over time. It's stacking up consistent volume and different intensities and various 
you know, workouts over time. And so what I see a lot with young runners and even with, with adults is, um, we did, we define the workout as good or bad based on an outcome. A lot of times and we let that dictate the next one and the next one and the next one, instead of saying, Hey, it's just a workout. It's just one workout and it's not good or bad. It's just a workout. And it gives us information about where we're at currently. And we use that to, to try to improve for the next one kind of thing. It seems like in a sport like running, where, like you said, we're so focused on the numbers and it's so objective, we can really, you know, put an exact metric on our performance. It seems like we'd be very well served to focus more on non-outcome goals. Is that something that you work on? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, And trying to help people articulate what that is and what that looks like, you know, and stuff. And so, you know, that's different for every person, but yeah, definitely focusing on process goals and really like what, what I call quality practice, which, you know, in the literature is deliberate practice, this idea of sort of practicing with intention and a purpose. And like that, if I'm going out and training, what's, what's the purpose of my training for today? And I think when you can really start to understand that and link that together, that helps you be able to shift that perspective to being more process oriented, like in that sense. Yeah, for sure. Understand that the purpose of the recovery run is to recover so that you can get the next workout in, but also you're building some, you know, baseline aerobic fitness while you're doing that recovery. Um, and you're continuing to condition your cardiovascular system, like at the same time, cause you can't take, you know, lots of days off necessarily and and continue to improve with cardiovascular aerobic work. And so that's the purpose of that. So that doesn't, you know, like, yeah, there's a time range that you should maybe be in for that workout, but like whether it's, you know, eight minute pace or nine minute pace probably isn't honestly that big a difference for the, you know, an average person or something like that kind of thing. But we get hung up on, on that a lot of times instead of just saying, Hey, the purpose of this workout is to recover. And am I, am I allowing myself to do that? And, you know, if I'm doing that, great. Don't worry about so much, you know, the, the, the minute details. Like, Yeah. I, I think the older I get and the more experience I have as a runner and as a coach, the more I believe that more mature runners who just better know their body and can get more out of their training are those runners who, who don't pay as much attention to every single number that they could pay attention to in their training. So I really love your recovery run example, because, you know, that should, that run should be done at a very easy effort. You know, it's a recovery effort and it can be hard to pin a specific pace on that because it can be very variable depending on a whole host of factors. And so the runners who focus more on the feeling of the run and that perception of effort are going to better accomplish the goals of that run. And I think progress faster, get more out of, you know, get more recovery out of that run so that they can then give more effort into the workout or the race that's coming up. Yeah. And there's, there's a mental aspect to that too. There's, there's, uh, you know, I I teach and talk about this mental recovery. Um, And most people do a poor job of allowing their mind time to recover. The best way is sleeping. um, But things like mindfulness, meditation, various things, just 
relaxing and socializing, having fun with your friends or something like that kind of thing, doing something away from running, whatever it is. But like we, we do a poor job of that and, and that impacts the physical over time as well. If we're not letting our brain kind of relax and recover, so to speak as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think these non-outcome goals are interesting because they really help you. You stay a little bit more grounded. They improve your motivation because you're not stressing and getting anxious over every little you know, number in your training. And they give you a sense of accomplishment when you do something that you can't really put a number on. You know, maybe you just improved your diet a little bit over the last week, or, you know, your pacing on easy and recovery runs was more appropriate. You know, those are kind of hard to quantify, but I think they give runners a lot of confidence and and that really translates more into their workouts and races too. Yeah, definitely. Well, Brian, I've had a great time chatting with you, learning more about, uh, you know, sports psych from the perspective of college athletes and then, you know, what we can learn from them. You know, with with everything that we've talked about, what would you say that us adult runners can learn from how college runners think about training and competing? What what skills or lessons maybe uh, are more prevalent in those runners that us adult runners would be well-served to be reminded of? Um, yeah, I think there's a couple things. Um, I'll just I'll identify them so we don't lose track and keep track of them. I think one is the, the, the aspect of like fun and competition that like you have at that age. As we become adults, we tend to lose the fun and sort of play aspects. So I'll talk about that a little bit. And then the other thing I think is this idea of like a team. College is kind of the last time, you know, if you compete in college, whether it's, you know, formally or like in a club thing or whatever it is that you have the ability to sort of be on a team, you know, some work environments have teams, so to speak, but it's different. And so like, as an adult runner, I think it's important to, you know, we, we tend to probably, most people probably train solo if we were to like analyze it. I don't know for sure, but I would say most people train more independently, maybe have one person they train with, but there's a lot less people that probably train in a group if we look at all adult runners as a whole. And so that idea of getting a group run occasionally or whatever it is, or actually having a sort of a club, even if you're not actually competing, that social aspect of being on a team, I think is something. So those would be the two things that I think, um, you know, there's lots of things that I could talk about, but this, those are two things that I see that are really important that maybe people wouldn't think about. And so if we go to the first one, this idea of fun and competition and, and, and competing and trying to push ourselves to be the best we can be kind of thing. Um, I think when we're 18 to 22, we, we have big dreams, so to speak, and, and that stuff seems reasonable. The older we get, I think we stop dreaming. We stop thinking that those things are possible. Um, and fortunately, there's lots of older runners that are still competing at a really high level now. And a lot of that is because sports science has evolved and we're talking about recovery and all those kind of things. And um, we're seeing people run faster at older ages now than in you know all different capacities. Um, whether it's the ultra endurance stuff, running longer, further, that kind of stuff to to 5Ks and people being in their early 40s and still being, you know, close to elite or elite 
at the 5k level, you know, which that, that was not really a common thing, um, until recently. And so I think some of that stuff is coming from, you know, we're getting better from a sports science standpoint and sports psychology is a piece of that and helping people shift the way they think about what's possible and, and where our limits are as, as humans and in human performance. And I think we place limits on ourselves as we get older and society tends to place limits on us and stuff like that. When you're a really young kid, you think you can do anything. And when you're 18 to 22, you still kind of have that and probably more so than at any stage in your life to some extent, because, you know, like it's, it's sort of like, okay, I can, I can make my choices now, you know, for myself and, and I could literally go any direction potentially. Um, and so I think we lose sight of that as we get older. So bringing that back, like rediscovering why we love running, like the fun of competing and pushing ourselves to be the best. And when I say competing, that, that's a loaded term because the way that we traditionally think about that is it's me against you. Like it's Brian against Jason and I'm trying to beat you, you know, as opposed to it's Brian and Jason working together to push each other to be the best that they can be. And, and that's a different way of thinking of it. And we frame that, you know, um, there's, there's books on this and research on this, but it's, it's, it's called, you know, we talk about it and call it like true competition or healthy competition. Um, versus the way that it's historically been taught is, you know, that I would have to hate you and that I hope you screw up and I, I want you to lose as opposed to saying, I want you to bring your best and be at your best because that's going to push me to be at my best and that's going to make me better. And when we get that going and we shift that mindset, that's where we can have fun and enjoy this competition thing more. And it doesn't have to be about, okay, I won or I lost or I PR'd or not, like it's more about just did I go out and push myself and challenge myself and, and have fun doing that. So that's that's kind of that first piece. I love it. I love the uh, fact that you mentioned having fun and community and surrounding yourself with with other runners. You know, it's kind of hard to be on a, a team like a college team, but you can certainly find the next best thing as an adult. And, and I think you're definitely, you're so right with this because, you know, us adult runners, we tend to be very type A, we, we obsess over the numbers, we want to improve day by day. And it can turn running into a very non-fun activity. When I think, you know, if we think back to why we started running or why we consistently continue to run, you know, we have to be having fun or else it's going to be very hard to sustain it in the long term. So I appreciate you mentioning that because I think that's so incredibly valuable. Yeah, the community piece is important. And I think, you know, we've, we've got a lot of research that shows that social cohesion improves performance, improves well-being, all those kind of things, those, those positive relationships, all that stuff that stems from that is, is important. So. Yeah, magic happens when you're surrounded by people you like and you're having fun working hard toward a common goal. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, Brian, this was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And uh, I certainly felt uh, a little bit on the spot when you were <laughs> reminding me of all the bad decisions I made as a college runner. <laughs> but uh, no, this was a, this was great. And I want our listeners to uh, be able to learn more about you and your work. I understand that you also do some things outside of your um, being a professor. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I do have social media. I'm more or less active from time to time, um, depending on where things are at with what I'm with my job and stuff like that. But um, 
Yeah. So I've got a personal website for my business and just information in general. Um, it's drzuliger.com. And then um, I'm on Twitter and um, Facebook and Instagram under that under my business and then also from my, my uh, personal accounts as well. So I, I can share that with you um, to, to share with people if they're interested. Yeah, I'm going to include all of this in the show notes. So everyone can certainly get all those links at Strength Running when this episode is published. So Brian, thank you so much for being here, for lending us your time and your expertise. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And that's my conversation with Professor Brian Zuliger. Don't miss his website at drzuliger.com or find him on Instagram at Brian Zuliger or on Twitter at Coach Z-O-U. For more details on performance psychology and how to build the mental skills that make resilient distance runners, go to strengthrunning.com brain and take our free course. I think you'll love it. Finally, go check out the Run Smarter podcast with Brody Sharp. They're our sponsor today, and I've been a guest on the show. You can check out episode 49 if you'd like to hear it. Now, the host Brody is a running coach and a physiotherapist who interviews world-leading health professionals, running coaches, and researchers, all aimed at delivering specific takeaways while highlighting common running misconceptions. If you like the Strength Running Podcast, you'll like the Run Smarter Podcast too. Brody does a great job of highlighting injuries, why they happen, how they can be prevented and treated, and what your next steps are, just in case that you do get injured. I recommend starting all the way back at season one, where Brody discusses the 10 principles to overcome any running injury. After that, you can explore injury-specific episodes like how to manage or prevent IT band syndrome, various tendon injuries, stress fractures, and foot injuries as well. That's the Run Smarter Podcast with Brody Sharp, which you can find in Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening, and I so appreciate the recent reviews in iTunes. If you'd like to review the podcast, please do. I'll be forever grateful. Thank you, and we'll be in touch soon.